the economic consequences of the Russian-Ukraine conflict, which is a war, no ifs, ands, or buts about it, but a lot of people still don't want to call it a war. A lot of folks are saying that there will be a whole series of economic turmoil conditions that will uh, take place, have take place, will drastically increase uh, the risk of uh, higher commodity prices, stagflation, social unrest. We've had a lot of movement lately. What's going on? Yeah, there's definitely, that has already been happening in a, in a very large part. Uh, first, I think, primary, primarily affected was oil and gas, but primarily natural gas. Prices of natural gas skyrocketed, and I think it's important to consider something that really nobody, I, I mean, I've, heard, I've, I've seen a few people mention it, but it's really kind of low on people's radars. During COVID, the, the oil and gas prices globally plummeted. Because, shocker, if you don't burn it, then you need to reduce your imports or your production because after the fiasco, I think, in uh, 2021, maybe, where they basically had nowhere else to store extra uh, oil and gas. So there was, you know, you, you ended up having negative gas prices, at least in the commodities markets, because there was just no place to put it. Yeah, and of course, if I'm a if I'm a gas producer, if I'm an oil producer, I'm going to fill up my tanks, tankers, my reserves as much as possible, and just kind of wait it out. I absolutely. If I got some profits, I'm going to do that. And of course, then the domino effect was the cost of um, oil tankers and LNG tankers to move those from point A to point B got expensive because people, hey, you know, I don't really know. Uh, don't have any place to sell it, so might as well put it and store it, and then that increased the cost of uh, transportation dramatically. So there's a lot of like you know the domino effect of a surplus or a shortage that people don't really consider. Um, but yeah, the the bigger component in in my view that is not considered is for most people oil and gas, but particularly gas in Europe got really really cheap during COVID. So you had, I don't have a chart in front of me at the moment, but you know you had a dramatic reduction in the cost of electric and other commodities. Uh, manufacturing got used to cheap gas and you know didn't did did optimizations for for profit margins and stuff that was good in the short term, but is now starting to hit them in the long term. Yeah, and and the same thing. For those of you who are concerned about junk bonds, and you should be in the U.S., there are a lot of companies that are zombie companies. I'm using that word different than what maybe someone with a traditional um, broker-dealer or investment advisor would use it. But I'm talking about zombie companies. I'm talking about companies that, if they did not have cheap debt, would be out of business. Absolutely. So you, you get these events that are oftentimes... In the case of interest rates, there's only one group to, to blame. That's the government. And you've got these this, you know, cheap, 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 cheap money. Get the economy going, blah, blah, blah. A lot of smoke and mirror. Here's a dollar. Seven mirrors. Look at that. We got all these different dollars. And that's dangerous because when at some point in time, the, the rubber hits the road. Absolutely. So same thing with this COVID. Okay, great. 
government, again, lock everybody down, nobody moves. Oh, surprise, surprise. It doesn't cost as much to run your air conditioner or your heater. Or drive. Compared to driving. And and so if you take your hands and you rub them together, that's called friction. So if people aren't moving, you don't have friction. And if they're kind of just hanging out and doing their thing. So there's just a whole lot of repercussions that go into this. And I'm just going to run with this, for example. A lot of people started gambling. Not gambling just on your traditional online gambling and everything else, but gambling in the stock market. Well, sports betting dried up. So your sports betting people start, you know, they their natural transition was, well, uh, the stock market's volatile. Let's go do that. Exactly. So, again, we've got friction going on, and all of a sudden it stops. Well, people have a need, and so they just wind up going to another thing. Well, now with travel back, people who might have been online junkies are now moving to Macaw. They're going to Vegas. They're going to Atlantic City and all the other places. Absolutely. So all of this starts to begin to shake out, and I think a lot of people are beginning to, in in my opinion, there are you know, gambling interests and everybody else. I would say, uh, yeah, I'm going to support Ukraine. Let's get the Russians out of here. This is name me a, a popular uh, gambling site that we're going to go to a mecca uh, in Russia. I'm not aware of one. Yeah, so. It, all of this stuff, you start to get a lot of pressure. And it's no surprise that the Russians have got a lot of people not happy at them, not, not thrilled. So a lot of the economic predictions that people make, they it's, it's all based upon the recency effect. Eventually things settle out. There's always that norming of everything. Yeah, and on, on a long enough time span, things will return to the mean. But I think the biggest problem with normal people's or at least the media the media person's interpretation of of uh projections or predictions is the they they make these projections and somebody says you know based on x and y factors this could happen right they don't keyword is could yeah it's, it's there's no guarantees of course but the important part is, is especially when it comes to COVID or, you know, uh, economic issues and things like that, when you're dealing with the government or governments, plural, the assumption with a lot of people or even big business, I guess, the, but the assumption is, oh, well, there's not going to be any change in the factors that have led to this prediction that nothing's going to change. Well... How often do you have a situation where the government just sits there, sits back and throws their hands up and just lets it happen? Never. It doesn't happen. So they don't account for the reaction and what the likely likely outcomes of those actions are. And you know that's just it's a. I'm sure there's a technical term for this, but well, you have to recalibrate. It's variable change. You're always you always have to recalibrate your predictions. And the problem with the media and the problem with the overwhelming majority of people is they hear something, they get it in their head, they get a meme, and before you know it, that's it's locked in stone, period. And that, and that's it's exacerbating the problem of human conflict because I got news for you, humans do not perpetually count; they're not always in conflict. People have to go to they have to rest. <laughs> Even in 1066, William the Conqueror, when he went across from England, when, when it came wintertime, 
we're, we're going we're gonna to knock it off. George Washington, again, the same thing. You know, we, we won those battles when wintertime came. Yeah. Well, so speaking of winter, everybody's all worried about the cost of uh, natural gas and, oh, Europe's going to freeze, and there's all these over-exaggerated claims about how terrible things are going to be. Based upon supply chains and the his- history that we've always had of just-in-time manufacturing, just-in-time delivery. But also, you know, where the oil, where the oil and gas is coming from and the current prices. Correct. So there's been a bunch of really interesting things going on from a consumer perspective. It really sucks. Um, but, you know, there's really not a lot you can do about it. The average... Was that the cost of natural gas has skyrocketed to you know four, six, seven, eight times what it was just a couple of years ago? When you consider when you remove the dramatic drop in energy prices during COVID, you're still at a two to four times multiple, but it's not nearly as bad as it looks. Like you said, it's it's recency bias, so a lot of people think, oh well, it was super cheap during COVID, so that's the way it's always going to be now. That's that's an insane low level that is just not supported by the modern economy. So that's something else to consider is a lot of people do have that recency bias and they think that COVID prices for oil are good. I mean, you see a lot of this, um, a lot of the, uh, let's say, more conservative-minded Trump supporters in, in the United States get upset about, you know, they get upset about the gas price situation with... Uh, with Biden and they're blaming it on him, which, you know, he's doing everything a reasonable, an unreasonable person would do draining the strategic oil reserve and all kinds of other, you know, questionable things. Um, but the thing is they always compare it, which is just, it's just not fair in, in, a, in all, in all honesty, it's not fair to compare it to the really cheap gas prices we had during COVID because demand was so, so, so low. Um, you know, so th- that's something to consider is, you know, it's, don't, don't relate things to COVID pricing because that's, it's, it's just the reverse could be made. Oh, you know, the commodities, uh, the, the price of wood is so, so much further down. The cost of houses is, have, have gone down under Biden. That's, that's a, that's a, that's a, he totally made that happen. It's like, no, the supply and demand is leveling out and the cost of, uh, you know, that's, that's not a supply chain pinch like it was before. Yeah, and one of the things from a, you know, I'm a forecaster, you're a forecaster. We we can talk all day long about quantitative analysis and, and uh, quantitative and qualitative analysis. And if we start getting into the numbers, we'll lose people right away. But for those of you who are, who are listening, remember this. Uh, there, there's a thing that a lot of times in mathematics you want to do. You want to we want to throw out the top 10%. You want to throw out the bottom 10%. You want to deal with the 80, might be 15, it might even be 20. You know, you might, you've got to get rid of the, the outliers. And what is, what is the norm? And understand that the norm, when you use 100%, is not necessarily the norm because it doesn't reflect the majority of the population. So if the top 10% is making a tremendous amount of money and the bottom 20% are making nothing, absolutely nothing, then you might want to throw out the bottom 20%, the top 10%. What does the average American make? And this is, this is not manipulation of numbers, which we oftentimes see with the Bureau of Labor and Statistics and stuff like that. But 
Well, you're trying to normalize the data because you can't make this if, you know, the problem is, okay, you got a tremendous amount of money held by a, by a few and a lot, there's a portion of people that have negative, you know, they have a lot of debt and then you've got everybody in the middle, right? You can't right. make a decision based on you know, what, what would average out to something that is so far above what normal people even have a remote access to. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't represent anybody. I mean, a good example of this is, I believe it was when the um, U.S. military was developing, when we were when U.S. industry and U.S. military were developing our first fighter jets. Obviously, in a fighter jet, you're going way faster, and when you fly around uh, at a much faster speed than a propeller plane could, you know, micro movements, especially back in the early days of uh, aircraft engineering when they just didn't have uh, the good understanding of, uh, as good of an understanding on the effects on the frames of these things and all that sort of stuff. You know, little movements, micro movements in what you're doing in the plane can severely affect, you know, the stability of your of what you're doing. It can cause you to crash. It can cause all kinds of problems, right? Correct. Uh, obviously today things are a lot more digital and they're they're a lot easier but back then of course you know you're flying a you know plane that can go you know faster than the speed of sound but everything's still manual so when you consider the 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 shift in what was going on the military said well we need to design planes uh with better seats because they were having some issues with certain you know certain sizes of people not not being able to fit certain controls Obviously, jet airplanes being a lot more complicated and needing more controls, it made things more complicated. So they decided to do a measurement test, and they went around the military, and they did all kinds of stuff, and they they found out who was you know the ideal pilot, and w- let's design the cockpit for that person. And it turns out that person didn't exist. And they had uh, they I don't remember which plane, but anyways, they uh, developed a plane with this ideal seat. And the downside is they realized uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of unusual crashes with these planes. They went through the data and they crawled around and they interviewed a lot of people and what they found out was the seat the quote unquote ideal seat that they had designed was not operating very well. Uh, certain people, you know, your legs were a little too long and it caused you to bump into this control and you know you can just kind of see the the domino effect of a problem like that. Mm-hmm. So they went back to the drawing board and they designed the first totally customizable pilot seat. And that's today where you get your adjustable car seat from, uh, your driver's seat. So they adjust, you know, height, you know, lumbar changes, uh, you know, just all the little micro adjustments on the fancy, you know, like car seat. That stuff goes back to developing jet airplanes. So the point is, is that you know, that average person doesn't exist. Or if they do, there's so few of them, it doesn't matter. And, yeah, and, and, you know, and you can measure everybody in the world and come up with like a, a series of size classes, which is what you do with clothing these days. But how many people can go to the store and get a T-shirt or something that actually fits really well? Very few. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, if you have a place or a T-shirt that actually will uh, accommodate a man with a very large chest, fairly decent size arms, and a fairly small waist, please let me know. God, I can't find a T-shirt to save my life. Well, that's the problem, right? So you're designing things for averages or 
you know, averages of, you know, your, your, your grouping people together. And that's just not possible. Yeah. And so. my, yeah, no, and literally that's, so there are different averages for different, different things. Yeah. And so by eliminating the top 10, bottom 20, whatever you want to do, you're just getting closer to kind of, this is what it, you know, kind of a norming thing. Yeah. Like I said, you're normalizing the data. Yeah. But like in my case, yeah, I fit my chest and the rest of me looks like uh, Mohab, the uh, tent maker. So it just is what it is. I want to go back to the war because there are some very important statistics here. I want to talk about what happened in uh, the, the war in Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, we had 2,325, that's the official figure, uh, service, service men and women killed in action, 20,000 and 93 wounded. The war in Iraq, uh, 4,492. Remember the drum beat? It was always boom, boom, boom. Another soldier. Boy, when that was going on, I mean, the press. That was terrible. It was just terrible. The drum beat, you know, ant, I call it anti. It, it just got to be ridiculous. You know, we hate Bush. You know, it was always funny. And I'm going to sidebar real quickly. In Ocala, Florida, there is an intersection at uh, 27th Avenue and State Road 200. And there's a Burger King there. So if you ever get a chance, take a look at it. That has historically been a political uh, point in Ocala. So it had very loud traffic. And during the Bush administration, the anti-war protesters were out there on a regular basis, chanting. Or, it was just every nonstop. The day Obama got elected, it was... It was done. They never went back out. So I just want everybody to know that. And just uh, put that in your pipe and smoke it. So going back to uh, the Iraq War, we had 4,492 killed and 32,222 uh, injured. So we got a lot of injured people, and, and we, you know, we know that's and a the, and, and to clarify, I mean, those are combat injuries. Those are combat so, injuries. So, you know, that's a specific subset. You know, lots of people were injured by all kinds of other stuff that, obviously aren't considered combat injuries. No, no doubt about it. And, and the psychological damage. So 36 totally all together, uh, just, uh, let me get the numbers, 58,000 men and women, predominantly men. So ladies, you can say what you want on that. But uh, predominantly uh, 59,000 were injured in one way, shape, form, or another. Yeah. Now let's roll to the most recent thing going on in the world, Ukraine and Russia. The Russians... They're not getting any casualties whatsoever, are they? No, Putin, I think last week or the week before, said that they've lost nothing due to this conflict. I'm not joking either. He actually said that. Uh, but we do have a piece of information that uh, throughout this entire conflict, the Ukrainians have been really open with their data and been really honest about their casualties um, and how many people or pieces of equipment and things like that that they have... Uh, dealt with on the Russian side as well, at least from their own reports and numbers. And a lot of people, including our own intelligence agencies, have kind of dismissed these numbers as being uh, highly optimistic at best. And other, so these other, you know, our intelligence, other Western European intelligence agencies as well have been, um, you know, putting out their figures and numbers and trying to guesstimate and figure out what, what they see from intelligence reports and real data and stuff. Um, also, another really interesting thing, which I'm sure will come up, is uh, there's a Turkish uh, organization called, I think it's called Oryx. Um, they've been taking all of the pictures and everything of all of these uh, pieces of equipment, and then they will assign them basically a number, 
and then they will deduplicate all of these pictures and all the social media and everything of a destroyed piece of equipment, Russian or Ukrainian. And then they've been coming up to find out, you know, visually confirmed losses or captured or whatever for, for equipment. So you've got a couple of really good um, sources out there for people who really pay probably more attention than they should. But unfortunately, you, you said a key word there, they're Turkish, and that means there will be people here in the United States who will immediately say, oh, we can't talk about them. Orban, well, he's bad, so whatever comes out of Turkey is bad. Well, uh, no, Erdogan. Well, what I, you're right. What, what did I say? You said Orban. I'm sorry. I mean, <laughs> Hungarians and Turkish have a, a tight relationship, so I, I think they do. I don't know. But uh, but you know where I'm going with this. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, it's like, oh, Ukrainians, oh, they're all a bunch of uh, hackers and everything else. And we'll talk let's, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that because I, I just, when I hear that, I always smile. I understand, you know, I, I understand people well, say It is that. a perception. I mean, that's that's definitely a real perception. But we have to do some some basics. So let's go back to uh, well, yeah, so, Putin. We got so, no no injuries here. Yeah, no, 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 no loss of well, any. He didn't specifically say that, but it's just one of these... You know, stupid statements that the leader says. It's a very Trumpian type thing to say. Oh, we've lost nothing here. It's like, really, dude? Okay. Yeah, Ferris wheel Putin. Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll mention that real quick because it's very funny. Uh, yesterday was the, you know, whatever the, it's a, it's the yearly anniversary for um, uh, the founding of Moscow, the city proper. And they have some annual celebration. And he... I guess inaugurated some Ferris wheel. I guess it's a. I guess it's a uh, Ferris wheel, kind of like the one in London. Yeah, it's 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 a big park by the river, and, and whenever you see anything about oh how Moscow is so modern and this and that, it's always the same area. Yeah, so they they inaugurated this Ferris wheel, and it was a whole thing, and you know they shot off fireworks, and it was a big celebration for the for the anniversary of the founding of Moscow. Of course, at the same time they're losing a lot of territory in Ukraine and people just thought the optics of that was terrible. But what was even funnier is after he left the uh, celebrations, a couple hours later, the Ferris wheel broke down. So, if only, if only Putin stuck up on top oh, of it. Wouldn't that have been great? That would have been, I mean, I would, I would pay so much money to see that him stuck up there flailing around. <laughs> get, get me down. <laughs> yeah, that would be great. So, yeah, the, so as far as the casualties and, and stuff go, we actually have a good proxy, piece of proxy information. Um, I haven't seen anybody discredit this report, so I'm, you know, again, I'm not a native speaker so, or, or reader, so you know, I do the best I can, and I have, I have some sources and some people that can help me out with it. And so far it seems legitimate, and I believe it is from the Russian government, it's a report from the Russian Ministry of Finance that has a figure in it that has how much money they've paid to the families of Russian soldiers. And, you know, to be very specific, this is not mercenaries. This is not the Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republic militias that fight for, that are, are heavily involved in this conflict. Um, this is specifically just Russian soldiers. And the figure comes out to some astronomical number, like you know, three hundred and fifty billion rubles or something like that. It's this tremendous amount of money. But you know, you do the math for whatever the the average pay for effectively like their insurance, their their going to war insurance policy for the uh, 
the Russian soldiers. And that works out to about, you know, just shy of 50,000 killed. So the Ukrainian number of casualties is really, really, really close to what even the Russians have put out by proxy, of course. Obviously, that number could be skewed because I don't know the specifics on, you know, do certain officers and things get more? I mean, that number could be skewed, you know, probably plus or minus 5,000 maybe if there's a change in like what they pay. But it's not going to be much is the point. It's a, it's a very significant number. So in the Vietnam War, we had a grand total of 58,200 service men and women killed. It looks like the Russians are going to Over be... Over nine years, though. Not nine years, yes. 1955 to 1975. Years I remember well. Yes. That was oh, a, so that's that goes all the way back to the very beginning. They're so going back to the very beginning. That's a 20-year period. Correct. Okay. Th- so in Ukraine, this is six months. <laughs> Not so good, Boris. So, you know, seeing what I've seen based on interviews, pictures, whatever, quality of soldiers... You know, the, let's say the Luhansk and Donetsk militias are much lower tier, much lower skilled, much worse equipped uh, soldiers. And when you count those and potentially other mercenary groups and stuff that have been involved on the Russian side, I honestly don't even know if that co- if that counts the Chechens who work under a weird separate structure that's it's it's a it's I don't know if that counts them either um so you know the russian actual you know dead count of soldiers on this is atrocious for 6 months and especially considering they really don't have a tremendous amount to show for it well let's just let's expand that for a second and, the well, then you multiply that by, I mean, a modern factor for casualties. I saw you just going to say, yeah. You know, you're looking at like seven to 10 to one for casualties. Obviously with this conflict, it may be different because especially with the Russians, they seem to really have difficult, uh, a difficult time dealing with casualties and, and, and getting people the medical care they need when they get injured. But even if you just multiply it by four, which would be, you know, in the modern sense, pretty charitable. You know, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of injured people on top of the dead. And that doesn't even count these, again, these these militias and and the, the mercenary groups. And from everything I've seen, they have suffered horrific casualties, particularly the militias. So, I mean... I, I I feel fairly confident saying that there's probably anywhere between seventy five and a hundred thousand dead, and probably anywhere between three hundred and five hundred thousand actually injured people in this conflict so far, just on the Russian side of things. Uh, the Ukrainian side is, I think they announced a couple weeks ago, somewhere between ten and fifteen thousand killed Ukrainian soldiers, and somewhere between a hundred and two hundred thousand injured, which. Um, is not good, but it's pretty damn good statistically compared to what the Russians are dealing with. If we use the ratio for the Afghanistan war, um, 2001 to through 2021, then the ratio of uh, 50,000 Russians have been killed and 434,000 have been injured. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah. So that's why, like I said, my, you know, using my ratio, it's much more conservative, but it's still, hor- it's still a horrifying number. If we use the ratio, and these are our people, 
uh, for the Iraq War, uh, we're at 363,000. So basically half a million Russians have been either killed or injured. Or at least Russian sympathizers, because you've got, you've got those militias that provided a lot of the manpower in the early days of this conflict. I think that's, you know, kind of, that's been reduced a lot for obvious reasons. So if you have a ratio of 1 to 10, and you have half a million people that have injured, and you assume mommy, daddy, brother, sisters, at least 10 people per injury have very close contact or knowledge of the injured person, we're talking 5 million. And if you, you again, you multiply it by 3, you're at 15 million people. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just... It's, it is a situation of... Which is basically 10% of the population. Yeah, I mean, it, just like the Iraq War. I mean, everybody everybody knew somebody who had somebody that was injured or whatever, or was deployed, right? Right. In this situation, I mean, in a more, I guess... But not everybody... Everybody's going to not only know somebody's deployed, they're going to know somebody's dead or injured. Yeah, that's the thing. Is is it's it's disturbing the social implications of those kind of casualties on society, especially one with a really low birth rate and a very high uh, expatriation rate and all of those types of things. It's it's it has a horrible effect on things uh, going forward, regardless of how it affects things in the short term. Yeah, the Russian birth rate is about 1.5. The Russian population is currently about 144 million. Japan's got about a 125, 126, give or take. And then you got Ukraine that's got 44 million. <laughs> Go, yeah. little guy. The underdog. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation. But so as far as energy, some, so there's, there's a kind of go back to energy for a minute. Um, again, it's, you know, people don't talk about the right statistics. In the Ukraine, in this war, people aren't really talking about the numbers that we've just talked about, you know, birth rates, casualties, comparing them to more recent conflicts that have a, that are more comparable. You know, everybody likes to compare everything to World War II or something, but that's just not a realistic thing. Um, you know, munitions and artillery are better and weapons are different and you know, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's a very difficult, you know, we also don't have armies of millions of people going at it. There's, you know, tens of thousands of people in a battle compared to hundreds of thousands. It's a very different situation. So it's good to put things into perspective, but you look at, we were talking about energy, you know, comparing things to incomparable uh, or uncomparable perspectives. COVID is an unrealistic comparison because it's, it's an anomaly, right? Correct. So you look at what's going on in Europe. Prices on natural gas are tremendously high right now. And one of the primary reasons is they've been buying, the different European nations have been buying every bit of natural gas that they can get their hands on. There's obviously an over, there's too much demand for the supply that's available. And they're trying to fill up all of their reserves in the country before winter. There's been little things that have been happening Italy has signed a new multi-year deal like a month or two ago with Algeria, a country nobody seems to talk about anymore. Uh, Finland is getting um, natural gas from Argentina. So there's a big, um, as I think you would call it, a deck chair shuffling of who's buying energy resources from who. 
because, you know, the Russians going back to the origins of this conflict have been playing this weird game of chicken where Russia would have an issue with a pipeline. Oh no, this pipeline has uh, needs to be shut down for a couple of days for repair. And then the, the, the Europeans would sit back and go, they're just screwing with us. There's no, there's nothing real to this. They would call them on their bluff, and Russia would go, "Ah, oh, yeah, well, now you're now that you're behaving badly and you're treating us poorly, and you're supporting Ukraine, we're just going to turn it off indefinitely." And then another pipeline. Oh no, there would be unexpected maintenance needed, and they would do the same thing. And it just, it's just this weird game that I don't know why they didn't just shut it off and give them the finger. But anyway, they gave they gave Europe a lot of time to give Russia a lot of money to fill up their reserves easily. So Europe has been going on and filling up all of their supplies as much as possible, their, their, st- their storage. And because of that, most European countries have said something along the lines of they're going to be fine through the winter in all likelihood unless something really weird happens. But even so, they're encouraging people to do things to become more comfortable. You know, ra- like a good example is you know raising or lowering your thermostat a couple degrees uh, from whatever the average is in Germany, they're saying, you know, this reduces your heating costs and whatever by a significant percentage. You know, it's it becomes exponentially harder to heat <laughs> to heat a room in cold temperatures. I mean, it's just it's it's basic thermodynamics. So uh, that's an interesting thing. So what's going on is, you know, the European countries are out there buying every piece, every supply that they can to stock up for winter and that's what's driving prices through through the roof. And another thing that's that wasn't considered at all by anybody and I saw this um saw this come across a couple weeks ago was the price of coal was going crazy as well because that was another thing that people don't consider is there's still a lot of coal uh for energy production uh in Europe despite the claims that you know they need to go green there's a huge portion of it is still on coal. And a lot of that coal also came from Russia. It's this other commodity that nobody talks about. So you've got uh, Australia, I think a year or two ago, I think it happened during COVID. They uh, basically stopped exporting all coal from something due to sanctions to to China. So uh, Australian coal mining has been hammered over the past couple of years, and now they have a prime market. They can sell it back to Europe. So... There's a lot of shifts and changes in the global supply and demand for energy that nobody's really talking about. No, no, no. And this also comes to the cost of things. Uh, Russian oil from the Urals costs about $40 a barrel for them to pump out of the ground. Um, That's a very similar figure to the United States because uh, we use a lot of fracking and expensive methods to get it out here as well. But Urals oil, I looked it up just a minute ago, is only selling for about $64 a barrel. And they've been giving everybody in the world that is willing to buy their oil. Europe is not, and other countries, a smaller kind of peripheral European allies or whatever, are not. But countries like India have been buying a lot of oil, China, things like that. And uh, India, people thought, oh, there was a big sea change in diplomatic uh, relations because, oh, India's decided to cut their purchases of Russian oil by 40%. And I will say, you and I both said, and I was vocal about it, what the hell's going on with India? Well, But, so, but you had to dig into yeah. it. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's the other thing we always say. You can ask the question, but don't make a, a, a permanent 
Well, people just make make an assumption based on the first thing they they see or hear. Well, what was going on? Well, there. an assumption is fact. Yes, yes. Um, so what what India was going what was going on in India was not that there was a sea change in diplomatic relations. It was because their their storage facilities for for crude was full. They're full. They don't have any other place to put it. So they just filled up all the reserves and then okay, they're done, or at least they cut it. And then you know on the on the desperation front. Um, China signed a multi-year deal to buy Russian natural gas at a 50% discount. So anybody who thinks that, you know, the Russians have the strong position in this are very, very sorely disappointed because that is not something anybody with a strong negotiating position would agree to. You know, one of the items I, I talk about all the time, and I've, I've been very frustrated on this, is the number of nuclear reactors that are under construction. And I want to talk about that because it relates to, to energy. Energy relates to economics. We can just go on Absolutely. to quality of life. And I want to say a quick sidebar. All of you who are green, 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 it's not the word green. It's called clean, but not clean, cleaner. You're, nothing's going to have a every single thing has an impact. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's an industrial process. You're pulling resources out of the ground. Even if you're using solar, even if you're building solar plant, solar panels that have, they're, you know, decent for the planet, you're going to kill the grass or the farmland that it sat on or cut down the trees. Yeah. There's all these natural resources you have to pull out of the ground and industrial processes that are usually not very clean to make those those panels. And, and it's not just clean, it's cleaner. And then if you do nothing, the consequence of doing nothing is also destruction. Absolutely. Just buy a house and don't maintain it for a while. See what happens. <laughs> yeah. So in China, we have 15 nuclear reactors that are being built. They're under construction. India, eight. South Korea, four. Guess what? Russia has four. I think that's interesting. And you can bet your sweet bippy that some of the brightest are not going to be working on those things going forward, uh, financially and otherwise. Turkey has three. Bangladesh has two. Japan has two. Slovakia has two. Ukraine has two. United Arab Emirates, the United Kingdom, and the United States all have two. Excuse me, what the hell's wrong with our country? Well, so to add a little bit of extra context, just from my observation of, of what's been going on, uh, the energy crisis in Europe is uh, also propelled by the fact that last year or the beginning of this year, I don't re really recall, France, which has something like 70 or 80% of their, of their power, is generated by nuclear. And they're adamant that they're going to stay on nuclear because it is cheap and renewable. They had some tremendous number of their reactors have to be shut down for maintenance, which means they don't have as many alternative methods for generating power in the country. And so because they're all on the European grid, they've been pulling a lot of electricity at a, an extreme premium from places like Germany, which, of course, Germany is, has been in the process since Fukushima, Japan, uh, shutting off all of their nuclear reactors because, you know, it scared them. So the Germans went from very aggressive to, like, you know, you drop a piece of paper to, on a table too loudly and they get scared and run away. Yeah, the beginning and of the year, they shut down half of their nuclear reactors. They had six running, they shut down half of them. 
Yeah, and they've been they've been working on shutting them down for since Fukushima, so basically like eight eight years or so. And it's interesting because so Germany they've been shutting down their nuclear plants and they you know they're they're going into quote unquote green uh, methods of electricity generation, but in the short term, what are they doing? Uh, they're running natural gas and coal. So they're bought, so the French have been buying all of this natural gas and coal powered electricity, at least primarily, from Germany, which of course has increased um, has increased electricity prices dramatically in France and, and everywhere else in Europe because you know it's a shared commodity grid and all that sort of stuff. France, th- so you know, you look at the pl- how how this plays politically. Russia was in a very good position to bully them into submission, and it didn't work. Yeah, they so used now, that Nord Stream and and you know gas supplies, and and because of that, you know, had these people that were in Germany, they're very pro nuclear, who are saying stop. <laughs> yeah, so you know, you you look towards you look towards the future now, and you know, Germany's going to do whatever Germany's going to do. Like they're a wild card. I mean, there's a reason that the intelligence that we shared with Ukraine regarding the Russian invasion was not shared with certain NATO partners like Germany, because they're a wild card that can't be trusted for a lot of things. Um, their long-term decision-making is weird and disturbing. But for France, they will pull most of their nuclear power plants back online, they expect, by the end of the year, after maintenance, because they had you know unacceptable cracks in certain things and, and uh, corrosion on certain components and things. So they wanted to make sure that they would not have any issues. So as you know, this the end of this year or, or next year, as most of these power plants come back online, the re- the inverse is likely to happen, where France is able to generate again much more nuclear based power, and then they can start exporting it back to Germany again, like has been in the past, which is one of the safety guards that the Germans, or at least German uh, politicians, have relied on for shutting down these nuclear power plants in Germany. So, you know, it's okay for you, but not for me, because I need to stand on my high horse and be the overly moral person. It's just, it's silly. Well, the, the, the repercussion of shutting down all these German power plants, nuclear power plants, are that all these mothballed coal plants, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, they're all back Oh yeah, they're all back. Yep. Um, so it, you know, and then it says, "I'm uh, reading this thing on the Wall Street Journal from recently." This complicates Berlin's plans to cut greenhouse gas emissions and reduce air pollution. Yeah, it's uh, a very silly situation, but you know, so my my kind of vision on this is that you know, you go into the next year, uh, energy prices in Europe will be down dramatically. I would guess, which will have a domino effect it'll be it'll mean less natural gas imports from from uh, the Americas will be needed which will reduce the you know supply constraint that we're at and you'll get a situation where things will normalize will it be more expensive than before probably within the norm yes it'll be somewhere within the mean but it won't be terrible um it's just it's it's like you said like I said earlier, man. It's it's a shuffling of the deck chairs, and you know it takes a while for these things to happen. These are massive, uh, multi-trillion-dollar components to the to the economy, and you know these are just the inputs. These these inputs, energy inputs, affect everything in the economy. You know, metal extrusion, 
I mean, metal smelting and extrusion is something nobody thinks about, but it's in everything. You know, it's in cars, it's in your smartphones, it's in all this stuff. It's something that's historically just been turned into a real commodity. It's really cheap. Well, how many things are based off of that? And, you know, you can just, a perfect example is COVID during, uh, construction boom during COVID, but look at wood prices. Yep. Well, if there's no supply, things are going to get really expensive really quick. And, you know, that's just one little component that increased the average cost of a house by like $20,000 or something. It was well, a lot. It's like Ikea. If you're going to college and you buy a bed and you need slats. Yes, yes. I found out about that. There's uh, this, the, there, Ikea is, you know, has a diverse uh, European manufacturing base. Obviously, electronics and plastic stuff. A lot of those things are made in China, but... Things that require a little bit higher skill, uh, they have tried to keep a lot of that in Europe. And one of the countries that manufactured certain products for them was Belarus. One of those products being bed slats. <laughs> it's a fairly simple thing, but it's uh, easy to screw up, though. Yeah, I mean, if you don't, it's it's uh, they have I think five or six options, you know, or maybe not that many, maybe three. Anyways, they they have a number of options, and you know, it's wood, it's pieces of plastic associated you know whatever and uh that was apparently their sole supplier or suppliers for this series of products was from belarus oops yeah so when this war kicked off they had to totally change where they were getting that from and something as simple as bed slats it doesn't seem like it would be that complicated well it's it took them you know the better part of six months to get things moved over to a new manufacturing and get the supply and distribution in place and do all these things. And from what I've heard, it's starting to straighten out, but you know, it's, it's, it's another one of these weird things. Like people just don't take into account. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. I mean, was that a fairly predictable thing in my view? Yeah. I wouldn't have put all of my eggs in Belarus. That doesn't make a lot of sense, but uh, it's a fairly easy thing to, to change. Did you have a plan for that? Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. But that, but that, it's everything is about uh, connecting dots. Uh, I, I do not like that word planning because everybody uses the word financial planning is such a horrible phrase for me. I just hate it. And uh, anybody who knows me, they usually smirk and go, "We know, Paul. You can't stand financial planners." Because it's 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 a it's a it's a ruse. It's a it's. A well, I guess the thing is, you know, most people I, I think have this perception that oh, well, if I have a financial plan, that means that's the outcome I'm going to have. It's like, well, it's a plan. A plan, as uh, they say in the military, over and over, a uh, good good plan, the best plan doesn't survive contact with the enemy. Bingo. Well, your financial plan isn't going to survive contact with your grubby little hands who are going to spend it on stuff and. You know, oh, I want a new car. Well, how does that affect your financial plan? Probably pretty negatively if you go out and buy expensive cars all the time. As as you yeah, I mean, you can set targets. Yeah, you can set some broad targets, but you you have to do your own thing because of variable change, and that will, everything will change. Everything will change, and I say that in context. Like, okay, bed slats. Yeah, I mean, there is a huge marketplace for people who can actually critically think. I think there needs to be a college degree in critical thinking, but you have to pass a test. Think, think about it. And that kind of quote, you're, you're squinting. I just think it's, uh, it's difficult to educate people on something that is an inherent innate trait. Oh, no, you, you're actually not going to train them. 
Well, you're just going to find them? Exactly. You're put them on a list so they can be slaughtered when, <laughs> when the new overlord comes in. So they can, they can go Soviet style on them and do a Katyn, <laughs> do a Katyn forest massacre and machine gun them. Machine yes. gun the Polish elites because, you know. Oh, you're you're getting in an area where people are going to go. So Polish elites, what? I don't. You're ta- I do not thought you're yes, talking the, about. The Russians to this day find it like a horrible offense that anybody talks about the Katyn Forest massacre, but they did. They in the uh, when when the Russians invaded um, Poland, they rounded up all of the uh, Polish intellectuals, or at least a lot of them, college educated uh, people, and they took them to a forest called outside of a city called Katyn. And they killed them all. There's a reason why the Polish don't care much for the for the Russians, and there's a reason why I have said, and I'll say it Polish again: Polish hate. I I cannot. <laughs> there's no way to. You cannot overemphasize this. The Polish hate Russia. Well, it, like I I don't, I don't think they really hate Russia as the people, but they hate the government with with like the deepest fiber of their being. And what's funny is people ought to go and read. Um, read up on the history of Poland because in the West, um, even I think even to this day, Polish don't have visa free travel to the United States. They always get the short end of the stick. Obviously, always, <laughs> obviously they get, they get, uh, you know, historically in America, they've been, you know, horribly taunted as a minority. Oh, they're always uh, made fun of the butt of jokes. I mean, like in, in Wisconsin and Milwaukee, you always have this, this vibrant, uh, background. You know, you had Polish and German and Italian, you had all these people. And all these jokes, you know, like, what's the smallest room in Poland? Polish Hall of Fame. What does it say on the side of a Polish garbage truck? We cater. Yeah. How many Polacks does it take to change a light bulb? 99, 100. One to hold the bulb and 99 to, cha- to rotate the roof. You always had those kind of jokes. It was always, they're always butted jokes. But when, when you had a Pole and a Russian, oh, geez, in a bar, it not a good time. You just, no. you, it, just get out before the bar stools start flying. And I have been in those situations. But that's again. But they don't do that. They don't. They know you don't go. There's no go zones. Yeah, yeah. So it's it, it, bars. It, it's an interesting thing since this conflict has started. It's kind of uh, you know forced me to kind of read some new things that I wouldn't have normally. It wouldn't have normally intrigued my int- or piqued my interest. And it's very interesting. Pol- Poland has a very, very, very interesting, deep history in Eastern Europe in particular. And they were the founders of this kind of confederation of nations that was like this proto-European Union mm-hmm. that goes back to like, what, 1200 or something? It's Something like that. There's a, you know, the Poles with the help of the Ukrainians and uh, Lithuanians and Estonians and Latvians. Of course, I'm talking about modern day countries. Um, you know, they have, mar- they have fought so many wars with, with Russia it is absolutely insane. But what's interesting is every war that the Polish and the Ukrainians fought together against Russia, they won. So there's that to consider. Um, what was it? Uh, there's a famous uh, burning of Moscow. Of course, there, that's happened many, many times. But the Poles invaded um, Russia and they burned down Moscow what sometime I, I don't I don't have the years in my mind, but what's interesting is people don't consider. I didn't even know this until a couple of weeks ago that when uh, Napoleon invaded Russia, uh, it, he wouldn't have been able to do it without the Poles. Yeah, the Poles were uh, instrumental in their ability to reach and sack Moscow. 
So, you know, the thing is, there's a lot of deep history in this area of the world, and a lot of it is not talked about, or it's kind of brushed over by modern historians. You know, we make the joke that in modern America we talk about founding fathers, uh, American Revolution, Civil War, uh, some form of, uh, you know, uh, women's suffrage, then stock market crash, then World War One, then uh, World War Two, then civil rights, and that's like all people talk about. Yeah, and, and you know, the, literally, those are those are the things that most people know from school. But you know, so there's no expectation that people in the United States or the West generally, at least with uh, at least Western Europe, have a decent understanding of the history of the more Eastern parts of Europe, because these these conflicts are being fought for a reason. These people have deep, deep, deep seated hatred for each other for certain things. And they, you know, it's one of those things you just, it's like trying to understand Middle Eastern relations. There are so many weird, different things that most people just have absolutely no idea. You know, how many people could tell, how many people even have a clue uh, what the relationship between Kazakhstan and Russia is like? Exactly. Nobody. Even though that's another deep seated, like, hate hatred relationship um well the russians have got a problem and the I, russians you know genocided native native people from kazakhstan tried to fill up the country with russians and colonize it despite them claiming everybody else on the planet are colonizers and they're terrible there's just so much uh uh it's just it's hypocritical bs going on and you know russia seems to be this country of uh of, of insanity that is very hard to, it's very hard to get your head wrapped around. Well, it's always going to be hard for us to get to the stands, whether it's Uzbekistan, Tamikistan, Kurzan, uh, Tajikistan, all of them. The stands are kind of hard to get to. I mean, it's not just Afghanistan. They're, they're kind of in a weird place. But what I have said is that if you think of a boxing analogy, Russia, Russia's, they've, they've, uh, they got a problem because Ukraine is, if the Ukrainians, if the European Union, Union more than anybody else, will allow the Ukrainians to go into Russia and start kicking butt, I want to talk a little bit at the end here about what's going on right now in in the, the war. But you've got the Ukrainians, and if they can kind of do a, a right uppercut, and then you got the Poles can do a left cut. Uh, you've got, of course, uh, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania. You know, we've got Belarus there. I mean, Moscow is not that far away. So you better enjoy your party now, uh, Putin, because uh, with the kind of losses you're taking and you're not going to build a military overnight, if, if, the, uh, if, if the boys in the bar get fed up with you, they're going to come and kick your, your tail. And there's, there's a real possibility of that. Yeah, it's... I don't think the Ukrainians will go as far to, as to take any Russian territory if it gets to that point. Um, just due to nuclear power politics, I think that will be something that will be avoided. But people will talk about it and threaten it and things like this. But it's demoralizing. You know, all conflict is both physical, intellectual, Emotional and the emotional drain is what we're talking about on the Russians. Uh, former what head of our uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff? I don't remember the guy's name. Uh, was a former, I think he was a former uh, head of NATO. NATO, yes, something like that. And he said, "Yeah, he said that the goal of our, our involvement in this conflict should be the dismemberment of Russia." 
And what they mean by that is they want all of these weird colonies that Russia has been allowed to set up over the past 30 years in Moldova and in Georgia and obviously now in Ukraine. Um, and there's a few others to, they want those to be released. And the likelihood is, is that, you know, they start losing territory, which is probably one of Putin's biggest fears, or at least the, the, the big honchos in charge of Russia actually in charge. Um, that's probably one of their biggest fears is once they start losing territory, where does it go? Because they remember in, you know, the nineties, you know, they let one go and then they all revolted and they all started going and there just wasn't enough military force to hold them down. So that obviously is very scary for them. But if you do have that happen, the likelihood is, is, you know, a pl places like Chechnya and things like that, they're going to have a civil unrest because people like Katerov, who's the leader of Chechnya, is not exactly a great leader. He is a ruthless asshole. He is not a good leader. Um, I mean, there's tremendous numbers of ethnic Chechens in Ukraine fighting for the Ukrainians. Meanwhile, Katerov has a little mercenary army that he sends in that are technically part of the Russian military. It's a very weird situation. I mean, it's basically a Chechnya is basically a, a, a weird place run by gangsters. Um, there were two, like uh, Spetsnaz, that's Russian special forces uh, regiments, uh, like headquarters in Russia in uh, Chechnya. And if you look at a map, you'll understand why. Uh, it's just it's a strategic location in the Caucasus and. A few years ago, they there was two leaders. There was Katerov and there was some other guy. They were having a political beef, and they each had influence over their own um, Spetsnaz uh, uh, operations, apparently. And they were using their Spetsnaz soldiers to assassinate each other's rivals, like blowing up cars, machine gunning people in the street and stuff. So the Russian on the federal level, had they literally yanked those military bases from their territory and removed a whole bunch of people from command because they just were using it as their own little like gangsters. So it's a very weird place run by unsavory people. Well, Russia and, has always been a, a, a country of gangsters. Let's just be blunt about it. This is to some degree that is very true. But the thing is that Katerov is especially a gangster. And I think it's important that people know that because he is, he is like a little godchild of Putin. Putin basically put his father in charge after they raised uh, Chechen cities during the first and then che second Chechen war. Reminder, this is like a civil war that happened in Russia to try and break away. And the uh, first Chechen war, the Russians lost. So then they stirred up some stuff in, in the early 2000s. And then the Russians started a second Chechen war and, uh, they won that one because they properly prepared for it. So, of course, the first Chechen war is comical because the Russians were confirmed to have lost like 150 something like that tanks. Right. And it was just a you know it was a, it was a mess. Well, in Ukraine now, visually confirmed losses, Russia's lost over a thousand tanks. And 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 the, Russia better be uh, careful uh, because Norway has always been a member of NATO. Sweden and Finland are now in the process. I don't know where that stands now, being part of NATO. It's just the envelope is tightening around them. Yeah, 
Yeah, the whatever the sea is up there um, in the in the uh, Baltics. I don't really know what that's called. Um, but the joke now is that that's NATO sea, because everybody except for the little bit of Russia that touches that that water uh, mass is there. It, it, it's all NATO partners. So Russia really has lost. On a on a very strategic yep. geopolitical perspective, they have lost so much when it comes to what they call it the the Gulf of Finland. When you go from the Baltic over to Estonia and the Helsinki, that that's what they call that. Yeah, but you know that whole area in general has been has been an area where Russia relies on it because they need to they need to use it um, to get their ships in and out of uh, Saint Petersburg. So it's so it's they're in a they're in a tough situation, and I am baffled it's gotten this far. Prudent, very realistic political leaders would not have let it get this far, but the place is run like you said it's it's run by a bunch of mobsters, basically, and who have no attachment to reality anymore, and that's very scary. Um, will it escalate beyond what it's gone? I don't know. I don't think so, but. Uh, Something I saw that um, the uh, secretary of the Ukrainian National Security Council, his last name is Danilov, uh, he said, things changed. We will not be satisfied with neither the return of Crimea and Donbass nor the reparations for invasion anymore. And in alliance with our allies, we want full capitulation and demilitarization of Russia. And I think that's indicative of what I what you mentioned earlier about this you know, dismemberment of Russia is is a very long term goal. Right. Well, it's it's incrementalism. You know, in other words, okay, if I say that I'm going to go out and have a fight with uh, Joe Frazier and I'm Muhammad Ali, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna get out there and slug it out with him. Well, got news for you. For those of you who are a little bit older, remember the Ali Frazier fight. Frazier's gonna beat Ali yep. in a slug fight. Now, if Ali does a little bit of rope a dope and he keeps jabbing, jabbing, and you know, dance like a butter, uh, was it a dance like a butterfly, sting like a bee, and yep. eventually you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna win it. That's what you're seeing. That's that's called incrementalism. Okay, that's incrementalism. It's no different than being, you know, uh, it's better to have a gun with uh, 22 rounds in it and you got a full, you're fully loaded, than to have a, a 38 with one or two rounds, or a 45 Usually. with one. I mean. Depend upon the circumstances. Unless you've got a tactical advantage, like you know. Exactly. It's it's. Yeah. If I'm gonna if I'm gonna assassinate you and I walk up behind you at 22 does a good job, I can also just completely annihilate you with a 45. There's all sorts of. But the point is, it depends upon the situation. But it's called incrementalism. So you got to pay attention to those. What you just said, that's a big thing to me. We got to talk about that when we get off off the line here, because that is that is the incrementalism of the destruction of Russia, and and they need to be concerned about that. Because they are they are enveloped into a tough spot. Let's talk about. It. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say. So you know, when you look at it, Russia has had a an outsized impact on the global economic situation. Yes, they because have. Because energy prices are uh, commodities and, and 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 energy prices have nothing to do with anything other than the cost of their inputs. Right. Mm-hmm. Like energy takes resources to make. It's really simple. And there's a lot of people out there trying to say that that's not the case, but I just I I I apparently just don't live in the same world they do because I don't know how you come to the conclusion that that's not the case. 
Um, obviously, money printing and whatever is also correlated with the inflation that's going on. But, you know, my perspective is that it's a tremendous portion of the inflation is going on globally is directly correlated with the cost of energy, not necessarily an oversupply of money. Um, so to move forward, how things are progressing, I, I assume that's where you want to go uh, in the current situation. Yeah, let's, let's finish up. We're, now, for those of you who don't know where Ukraine is, go ahead and pull up your map. We're just going to do a north, south, east, west, and we'll do kind of a quadrant. We're not going to get into the names. We can do that. But, I'll, I'll uh, mention some names just for my own purposes but um there's several good military maps out there uh one I'll, I'll give you a link for one of those that's uh it's back it's usually backdated by a couple days for obvious reasons um but you know my based on my sources my information uh, i can give you kind of a good up-to-date perspective as to what's going on and um the map obviously you can put it in the links for the show um so Russia basically has, uh, they have you know, a tremendous amount of territory controlled in Ukraine. Is it very useful territory? Um, not really. It's kind of the lesser industrialized uh, areas of the country. Starting uh, the beginning of last week, well, okay, let's go back to, let's go back one more week. So the beginning of September, end of August. Ukrainians launched their long-awaited counteroffensive on the Kherson region of Ukraine. And for reference, that is the uh, south, that's south, and that's, uh, it, it goes basically east to west over uh, a river. And it's basically this area that straddles uh, north of Crimea, which is the I guess is it technically an island or is it a peninsula? I don't I don't really recall. Anyways, and obviously that's that has been under control of Russia since uh, 2014 when they totally didn't seize it for themselves. They're still sticking to that. Anyways, the this long-awaited counteroffensive uh, Ukrainians have been talking about how they've uh, basically. So you talk about the beginning of the war. You know the Russians go in, they seize some territory in the north. It kind of skirts like a big horseshoe all the way around the edges of the country. Um, obviously, by the end of April, the Russians had abandoned their positions north of the capital and then all the way east to uh, just north of the city of, of Kharkiv, um, which is, I think it was the second largest city in the country, um, second to the capital. And it's a unique situation. I remember following the initial days of the invasion up in that area most closely because it was a weird type of situation. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's, a very good, uh, that's a very good source there, by the way, the Institute for Study of War. They have fantastic maps and their Twitter account every day. They, they have uh, very good verified information. And what, and what you can see here with this is the collapse of the Russian front. Yes, exactly. So the this this area um, of Kharkiv, it's a it's an oblast, or we would call it like a state. Um, this this is it's an oblast, but it's also the the capital of the oblast is is a city, Kharkiv, and it is interesting because it's only about uh, it's less than I think fifty miles from the Russian border. I don't remember the exact number, 
uh, but it's very close. So Ukraine's second largest city is is very short distance from the Russian border, and it has a, a high percentage of Russian, um, you know, ethnically Russian or at least mixed Ukrainian Russian people. Um, something people don't know is something like seventy percent of people in Ukraine speak Russian. Uh, there's been a huge uh, movement since 2014 to for everybody to speak Ukrainian signs and things like this. That's why you'll see like Kharkiv, K, I believe, is silent. Um, in in Russian, that's Kharkov, O V. Well, in Ukrainian, they 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 spell it I V, so it's Kharkiv. Uh, same thing with with a few other places. I can't remember what it is. Anyways, you'll notice this. There's a disparity, and sometimes that's hard to understand. But anyways, it's a, it was a very interesting city to watch because, for me, it was a very good indicator of how effective the Russian military would be in the long term. Because if you can't capture a large city that's on basically on the border with you and is just across the border from a city called Belograd, which is a giant military hub uh, for the Russian military... If you don't have the ability to capture that, then you don't deserve to be fighting. And that was that was kind of a tell. Well, the Russians never did capture it, but they left a kind of little band north of it that was uh, has been harassing the city and wasting uh, Ukrainian resources ever since. So the Russians gave up tremendous territorial gains at the end of April, uh, or by the end of April, and the lines of contact effectively kind of stabilized. Um, there's there was movements. The Ukrainians would lose you know territory fairly consistently month on month uh, following that, but it was it was a slog for the Russians to capture it. A good example is there's a city by the name of Lyman or Liman um, L Y M A N in the east. The Ukrainians defended that with you know a good contingent of people, but nowhere near the kind of resources the Russians had. But they held it off for four weeks in one day. Well, Based on the reports I've seen, the part of this more recent offensive that I'll start talking about in a moment, the Ukrainians took that back in a day. So, you know, the amount of defense infrastructure and stuff was not put into place because they didn't expect there to be a real counteroffensive. So, so the line stabilizes after this period, and it turns into a very kind of slow positional war um, with a very it, it becomes attritional. And it's who can outlast who. So lots of artillery. Uh, the Russians kind of stop using their aviation in any significant capacity because the Ukrainians get better at their uh, anti-air capability. Uh, obviously, the Russians have a good anti-air capability, so there's not a lot of aviation going on. Um, the whole situation just gets really weird and very stagnant. And the Ukrainians, starting in, I think, May... Uh, start talking about hey you know hey we're gonna we're gonna go after we're gonna take Kherson because Kherson is uh, mostly situated it straddles a river but it's mostly situated on the western side of a river and if the Ukrainians can recapture this area it's strategically important it kind of creates a good buffer for them the Russians obviously don't like this because they want to continue to take territory. The uh, the the Russian goal for this entire thing, other than capturing of the entire country, was definitely to connect uh, and take all of Ukraine's Black Sea access. They wanted to take that away from them and basically starve them out. If they couldn't take the entire country, they would starve them of their economic opportunities. And 
so this this we're going to take Kherson back. We're going to take Kherson back. That's where our offensive is going to be. And the Ukrainians did do that. I mean, they needed some time, and they 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 delayed things as much as they could, and turned it into a situation where it was grinding. But they were able to build up trained reserves, and they were able to build up you know munitions and uh, armor and equipment to support the soldiers who are going to do this offensive. And it became very visible. Like, by satellite, it became very clear. Uh, the numbers of soldiers and all of these things, it became very clear for everybody involved that, yep, there's definitely offensive that's going to go on in uh, Kherson. So you fast forward to uh, the end of August, this offensive starts, which makes sense because, you know, the reality is even now there's only a couple weeks, you know, four, six, maybe eight weeks if they're lucky until it starts snowing. So, you know, winters in that part of the world are brutal and wars basically grind to a halt. Um, and from everything I've heard, the war there in Ukraine, as it has been going on since 2014, in the winter, it gets really brutal, primarily because everybody just starts blasting artillery at each other constantly, and there's not a lot of movement going on. So this offensive starts, and it's interesting because we see some movement. They start taking some territory. It looks good, promising. We know that the Russians have prepared for this because there's been a lot of stuff going on over the prior months, starting in uh, June they were receiving these HIMARS systems from us, which are long-range artillery, and they've been pounding supply warehouses, bases, uh, ammo depot or uh, weapons uh, and and repair depots, um, any place that is of a strategic value to the Russians in that area of the country, all over the country, but in that area of the country in particular, uh, you know, they're taking out bridges, and then the Russians would come in and set up pontoon ferries and pontoon bridges and things, and they would go and blow those up again, and it just on and on and on and on and on. And so they got to a situation where they launched this offensive where the Russians were basically cut off in this area. It's a huge area, and there's a lot of supplies there, and there's a lot of men there. The estimate is somewhere between twenty and 30,000. Uh, but they are on the opposite side of river. There is no way to get supplies to them that doesn't involve basically putting on a boat and driving it across a very turbulent river. And that is a slow operation compared to a bridge or a train. Not a position any of us would want to be in, <laughs> I would assure you. So as the offensive starts, uh, they're, you know, it's, it's slow, but it's, it's, you know, they're making progress. And then out of nowhere, uh, the beginning of last week, the Ukrainians launch another offensive into the far east of the country. So this Kherson area is in the south. Kherson, or Kharkiv uh, Oblast is uh, the northeast of Ukraine, uh, at least the territory they control. And in overnight, totally unexpected to anybody, uh, we start getting reports that, oh yeah, they punched through one of these defensive lines and they're basically just sprinting towards you know victory, basically. You know, they're just... Uh, taking taking villages, taking towns, you know, they're making dramatic uh they're making dramatic progress. And it at first it's it was it's I guess in hindsight it wasn't really a lot of progress, but at the time it, it meant a lot and it seemed like a tremendous amount because of how static things in that area of the country have been. Right. 
And the Ukrainians really have not made any progress in that area of the country since the beginning of the war. They've done nothing but lose. They've been able to lose slowly, which has been able to buy time. Um, but for for that area of the country, the fact that they had any any territorial gains was, you know, people were ecstatic um, who have been following this. You, you know, videos of them liberating some of these cities and, you know, the Ukrainians, uh, the locals, you know, very thankful. You know, those are, you know, for most of these guys, I'm sure that's what, that it's those types of experiences that make all this shit worth it. Um, you know, very emotional locals who are very happy and, you know, so so that's cool. But then it just keeps going. And then what we realize is, well, this has probably been going on since actually the weekend. And what we're seeing is multiple days old. And then people are trying to figure out what the hell is going on because they just keep going city after city. And so each day you just see this, this accelerating progress. So, you know, we're a week later and the Russian general staff has admitted that they have completely abandoned the Kharkiv Oblast when before they had almost the entire thing under their control. The last number I saw was something around 8,400 kilometers of territory has been regained. That's 8,400 square kilometers. That's a, that's a lot of area. Um, and, and Well, just real quickly, uh, NPR is reporting that uh, they shut down the, in, in, in the last hour, the... The I'm not going to pronounce this Z A P O R I Z H Z H I A. They're, they're nuclear power plants. Zaporizhia. Okay, Zaporizhia power plant. Thank you. Has been shut down by the Russians. Yeah, and that tells me a lot. Yeah, they've been using that as a as like they've been trying to use that against the Ukrainians for weeks. There's been a whole bunch of silly and stuff and in propaganda war going on and they finally I think the IAEA and other people basically bullied them into shutting it down so it's no longer a risk for anything and then the I can't pronounce the river what's the river that uh, goes back and forth or the uh, Drapo River or something no, like that the Dnieper. Dnieper, thank you I, I I can't see on this thing um, that is a strategic D, the D is water. kind of silent you, when, yeah. when they speak it's it basically it's like Dnieper Okay, I, I, I you know, uh, hey, listen, I'm an old man. What can I say? No, I mean, every language is different. I've, <clears throat> I've, I watch a guy on YouTube who does a lot of mapping and kind of tracks all this stuff, and six months later, he still can't pronounce any of these, any of these names. He's hey, done a my, few interviews with Ukrainians, and, and they just laugh at him because they know he's Yeah, yeah, terrible. you know, and we've been saying it forever, but I see the D and I just lose it, uh, the, the Nipper River. But, you know, there's just, but that's a long ways away from the front lines, but it's getting closer. Uh, the power plant? Yeah. No, 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 it's not. It's, it's literally across the river from Ukrainian-held territory. Yeah. It's weird. No, that one is in particular, it's very funny because there was a video, uh, the, th there's all kinds of- Oh, yeah, of it is. I'm sorry. I'm looking at the wrong map here. Yeah, that is right there. Well, the fact that they, sh yeah, well, they've shut it down. You know, there's a lot, but there's a lot of political imp implications here on these things. It's just huge. So the outcome of, of, of this, of this offensive in the Northeast as of today, one week later- is that they have effectively either they, they've pushed or forced the Russians into full retreat in that area of the country. Um, on the ground, from everything I've seen, the Ukrainians have not had to fight a tremendous amount. Obviously, there's been fighting, you know, there's been casualties on both sides, but uh, the Ukrainians have been able to successfully, very rapidly do 
you know, nighttime reconnaissance, find out where they need to be, where this, where the weak points are, wait, you know, surround the city. And then by dawn, they're rolling into the city. Basically, you know, my analogy is kind of chasing people out in their underwear because they weren't paying attention to what was going on. Um, you know, there's been some very large battles and things in that area of the country, but they have so far have been able to ha- basically use the use surprise as an advantage and wipe mop them up pretty quickly. Uh, I saw a video of a Russian who was leaving one of these cities that they were uh, supposedly going to reinforce, and they were fleeing the city because they basically went into the city to reinforce the existing people in the defense of it. Uh, Russians and they barely got out alive because they basically got into the city and it was already occupied by Ukrainians and they got ambushed basically. So there's lots of little things like that that really tell you how unprepared the Russians were for any type of, uh, of uh, deep penetration of their defensive lines and you know, other little things that really show you that they're very poorly equipped and prepared for, any type of success in penetrating their defensive lines was things like, like I don't remember exactly. It was like two companies of, of Russian soldiers had mm-hmm. like three or four pieces of armor between the two of them. That, that's like, not, that's that not is, good. That is so <laughs> that's, that doesn't cut it. Like that doesn't even cut it for half of one. It's just, it's, it's pathetic. So it shows you that they moved a lot of their soldiers and a lot of their equipment to this area in Kherson to fight the Ukrainians uh, on their announced offensive. And they're having to adjust and reorganize and move people around, and it's an ugly situation for them to be in. Uh, I, Again, like this entire war, I would, I do not envy the Russian position because it makes no sense. It's very dumb. And it's just, it's a weird, it's a weird, very weird situation. There's like, I can't, I can't use any other words to, to describe it other than it's just weird. Well, I think, you but know, go ahead. It, it, they're at some point they're going to have to come to reality on this. And reality is, is that they were not prepared in the first place to launch this thing. And that their leadership are really, really, really blind to reality. When we started this whole project when the invasion took place and we were knee deep into different things we looked at the picture of the pilot with a gopro and a not a gopro a um garmin garmin yeah but we looked at those things and we we began doing our own version of intelligence gathering and it was there were enough things that we saw enough tells and that's a big thing having in in business and law enforcement you gotta look at the tells people people have tells yeah a, a wink a smirk you know it's, it's like poker you know it's, it's poker and you we we started seeing these tells and it's just something's not adding up and the russian military is not the big boogeyman that we talked about so a lot of the things that we've been talking about saying okay that's fine they got these great jets and etc they may have built one two or three but they don't have a fleet. The, the U.S. military, and we, we, we haven't been able to shoot down any, you haven't shot down on any of this super-duper Russian plane because you don't have any. And we also haven't fought each other directly, right? And we've been talking about the HIMAR. We've been talking about our weapon systems. We've been talking about a lot of things. And now 
you know, it's it's an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And, and a lot of the things that we've been talking about, I think people are beginning to, people that follow us. I, I had a lady, a gentleman went to lunch not too long ago, and they said, my God, you guys called it. I mean, they, they listen to everything we do, and they listen two or three times, and it's like, you guys really nailed this stuff. And we did. Well, but, the things that we understand is that, you know, government moves really slow. And if you can see the tells, like you said, it becomes really obvious. And then on top of it, as we gain a deeper knowledge of these things, especially when it has to do with Russia, obviously, you know, you have, you have a lot of knowledge of it, especially given, you know, your time and politics and different things and obviously your age helps because these are a lot of things that have gone out of modern kind of the average person's uh knowledge because the cold war is over people just kind of eh, it's not important anymore but you look at how things worked back then are they that dissimilar from today not really uh things move very slowly and apparently in russia they move even slower and you know it helps to be able to relate these things to the soviet war in afghanistan or Chechen wars or, you know, obviously, you know, it's, you, they're incomparable to our conflicts, right? It's just, it's, it's, it's alien by comparison because when we have, <laughs> we, we seem, we solve problems or we bail. Like there's just, there's no middle ground. Like you have to make a decision. We don't just say, yeah, we'll throw another 10,000 soldiers into it. Hope it works this time. That's just not the calculation any American leader or politician or or or, uh, or general would make, but that's something Russians do. So again, it's just it's it's these tells. It's like, are have they changed their way of of doing things? Like you said, uh, the GPS thing was a huge one because it was like these guys are flying a forty million dollar airplane around with a Garmin. And with and, the, and, and there's with, other and there's other tells that we saw that you know some of these Russian military vehicles totally stocked and they're gone. Like where did everybody go? Yeah. People running away from equipment and stuff. There's uh, no will to fight. Equipment. Yeah. That's a huge one. Morale, morale and will and will to fight is an, is a huge problem, especially when you're looking at people who are highly trained or, or at least professional soldiers that should never happen. So uh, a big picture and we'll start wrapping up. I'll give you a couple last things to say, but I want to get this out and then you can follow up and then we'll, we'll call it. I think the problem that I see, and I, you know, you know, and I know, I've talked about balkanization forever. This has been one of my key words before it even became a word. I, I, I literally think I created this word, balkanization, balkanization, balkanization. This is huge, and and I'm thinking you're, you're seeing more and more of that. You cannot stop the word nationalism, and you can try to turn it into a pejorative and say everybody's a Hitler, everybody's a Nazi. You can you can do all that kind of stuff or whatever you want to use. You know, I mean, just you can't. It's not going to work. And uh, th- those days are so long ago. People don't care about that anymore. They just literally don't. So you've overused something. It's done. And I think the, there's a lot of things here. The Russians have overplayed their hand so badly that uh, I think you said Pooh Bear is going to be talking to Putin. and um, Yeah, Xi's leaving China for the first time since COVID started. And where is he going? He's going to Russia. So I don't know. I don't think anybody has any idea what that's about. But it, if, I were, if I were Xi, I would tell Putin to knock it off. And basically, like, you are going to be slowly dismembered by the West if you don't get, grab a picture of reality very quickly. Yeah, and, and sanctions that uh, are going to continue in, in a whole variety of different ways. And it's just, you know, the, the, the wrench is going to, 
Listen, China goes into to Taiwan, all Billy Hell breaks loose. There's no doubt about it. And if that happens, then you're going to see Europe go into Russia. There, it's just going to take one minor misstep now by Putin, who is obviously not well. Uh, you've got uh, a bunch of old people running governments all across the damn green earth. Uh, I think we should, we should acknowledge uh, King Charles uh, III of England. Oh, yes. And uh, another momentous uh, sea change, let's say. And I think we should begin telling our clients and those who are listening to us that that, that could be a big sea change. And so why don't you uh, give us a few views on that and we'll wrap it up. Not only him, but what I said about Russia and, and what could happen. It's, here's the thing, folks. When the winter comes and you're hunkered down and you're constantly being shelled and you're not eating well and you're not being... Uh, uh, treated right, uh, you tend to uh, be very uh, demoralized. And that's going to happen in the Russian army. In yeah. addition to which, you think they all look like white Northern European Americans, okay? They're not. The guys that are predominantly fighting there are, um, I'm going to well, use not a, predominantly, but there's a lot of them. Uh, like, well, there's like, a lot of Mongols. Let's just put that way. It's just Well, yeah, I mean, you have different ethnic groups out I'm not being mean. We got to no, no, call no, what they are. No, it's true. Uh, no, there's a there's Russia is a very multi ethnic empire. Let's call it. They they like to think they're an empire. So whatever. Yeah, multiculturalism. That whole entire thing comes from Russia. Yeah, it really does. But but so Russia is a multi ethnic empire. Like, and when I say ethnic, I mean you know it's not just like oh it's Polish versus Germans or whatever. You know, we're talking about people who look like Northern Europeans, which is what you see most of the time, at least in movies and TV shows and media about Russia. Right. You know, they put on the fan, you know, the the well-dressed, very attractive people. That's that's usually what they show. But the reality is, is a lot of Russia is people from the Caucasus who, you know, they look a little, uh, they look a little, I, they, have, they have Middle Eastern ethnic influences, let's say, and obviously they're largely Muslim in the Caucasus. And then you go all the go, way over to? Yeah, then you go over, you go further east, and you go into, you know, basically Siberia is what they call it. And, you know, the, the people from those areas of the world, they are mixed. You know, they are people that look like they belong in one of the stands because they are. Um, they look like they're people from, like, northern Mongolia because they are. So, you know, there's... A, and you showed me one picture of a whole group of Russians. I said, well, those are Chinese. And no, they're Russians. No, and those guys are from very far east, and they're another ethnic group. So there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of... There's an overutilization in the Russian military throughout this entire conflict of their, mi their ethnic minorities in this war. And that also, I think, fuels a, a part of this... Uh, I think this perspective of who cares just throw 10,000 more into the into the meat grinder because they don't care about these people they're a pain in their ass they they view them as leeches on you know the great high-tech russian empire that doesn't exist you know there there is an element of you know classism and racism among these different ethnic groups as there is everywhere in the world of course but but so they're they're definitely leveraging that um and that's something else to remember that you know, there's there's always multiple layers to all this stuff that's going on, um, but so to go to the queen, that you know, so Queen uh, Elizabeth is has passed. Of course, everybody keeps using the the hard and firm word. Oh, she's dead. She died. It's like well, we don't have to be 
barbarians about it. We have words like the queen has passed. Can't we use that? Anyways, I just noticed a very uh, uh, rough and kind of, I don't know, uncouth way of discussing this among a lot of people. But uh, yeah, so, you know, you now have King Charles and uh, the third, I believe. And yeah, there's obviously he's a 75-year-old man because his mother clinged on to the power of uh, the throne for as long as she's till her, till her, till her dying breath. And which is kind of interesting because her legacy is the longest ruling leader of uh, Britain, 70 years monarch. Yep. Um, she, or so, you know, he's 75, you know, if he lives as long as she does, he'll have 21 years. And, you know, obviously that would be lucky for him. So and the key is, well, what kind of a mark could he set? And that's the thing. Yeah, and I don't think anybody really knows. Um, but I would assume that really, like anybody else, there's probably some there's some level of ambition to make his mark on things. And, you know, basically his entire life, he's in effect been a business person. He's been in charge of a lot of the kind of business operations of the monarchy. Uh, they've been able to, at least under his watch, um, at least as far as I'm informed, turn their business operations around into a very profitable uh, kind of series of businesses, of conglomerate of businesses, and really kind of bring, be more self-sustaining than they ever were in the past, not taking uh, the kind of aggressive handouts that people would uh, previously expected. Right, in those days of... of criticizing the monarchy for being a leech on the country or those you can't do that anymore. Yeah. I mean, I think some people still complain about that, but it's, it's a minuscule amount of money by comparison to what it used to be. You know, obviously the monarchy used to consume everything, but he has power now as did she to do one single thing, a lot of things, but through one decree. Yeah. The monarchy in in Britain, I'm not as well versed on this and I'm not going to go into too much detail because it's, a, it's another area of study for somebody that has more knowledge than me. But um, my, it is my understanding that they have approval and disapproval over the prime minister. They can remove or whatever it's called the prime minister at any time. And there's some form or process to them having some authority over the uh, dissolution of a parliament. And I don't, you know, specifically know exactly how all that works. I'm sure there's lots of processes and procedures to it. But it is interesting to note that every King Charles prior to him, of course there are two since he is the third, has dissolved Parliament. So, you know, I think there's a synchron there's a synchronicity to uh, to things and is there a tell there? Because he could have picked more of different variety of names. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, he could have he could have picked a different name for sure. So, you know, I don't know, but I mean, he seems like he seems like a person with a certain amount of ambition and uh I think it's let's just say it's a space to watch going forward. It could be very interesting or he could rule like his mother where they're passive and are not involved. My guess is even if there isn't some big extreme event that happens, the British monarchy will likely be much more involved socially and politically in Britain going forward. And it'll be very interesting to see what exactly they decide to do. Um, I do know that for Prince William, he is now in charge of, uh, I guess he's not Prince, is he? What does he, what does he elevate to? Um, 
Oh, I know he's number two. Whatever, what, yeah. whatever. Technically, he has has, has evolved to. It's, yeah. like a, it's like a Pokemon. He's they're evolving slowly. Um, <laughs> they're, they're becoming more powerful with time. So, anyways, now he's basically taken over his father's duties, running the business empire, basically. And uh, the little kids, uh, William's kids, are now elevated to princes, and it's a whole whole thing. Everybody, everybody moved one step further to. To the crown, which is kind of interesting, but you know it is it is kind of cool. So you, I was I was thinking about it. So you have uh, the queen dies, and now Charles is in charge. If he spends all of what is likely to be his maximum of twenty one years in in power, then his son will then he'll take power when he's in his sixties, right? Correct. To which, you know, you just kind of step it back. It's like, oh, well, so you, we got some short kings, and now you're going to, it's going to gradually get longer potentially if, uh, if things hold. So, anyways, it's kind of interesting. I don't know exactly what the future holds, but it's, uh, maybe it'll be a little bit more interesting than the boring British politics of, uh, my entire life at least. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I'm going to say, and we're going to wrap this out of here, the, you know, Camilla is going to have some serious impact on Charles. We all know that. Absolutely. And uh, and they call her, you know, Queen Consort. Now she's the Queen of of, uh, of the United Kingdom now. And I think the big thing about this is she has a a, a pretty good. I like. I would say she has a a more of a commoner's background, but she's elevated herself to a, a level of class without the emotional baggage that came with Diana. And a lot of people are always, oh, Diana, Diana, Diana. There has been, in my opinion, absolutely nothing at all about Camilla other than she has been classy. And uh, she's just like... uh, Well, I don't know the ins and outs, and I don't follow it like a a bored housewife would. But, you know, from my understanding and my perspective, she's somebody with uh, very little controversy, at least... You know, since since the initial controversy, and yeah, it's just it's a it's a calming effect. Obviously, there was a very funny uh, video that uh, was being passed around social media of Charles signing something, uh, having to do with his, you know, officially becoming king, and he looks over at like the butler, who set like the little tray with the pens on the table. Mm-hmm. And it was right in the place where his hand would sit on the table to sign. Mm-hmm. And he jerked it over and looked at the guy with a snarl, like, like you little shit, how dare you put my pen? Anyways, <laughs> and people, of course, are like, oh, he's losing it. He's just like Biden. He's losing his mind or whatever. I thought it was very funny because it's like, this is one of the most important things and you can't even get the pens right, you. <laughs> of course, to me, that's comical because these people live such an elevated life of luxury. Any little thing out of place probably pisses them off and, and ruins their day. Well, anyways, the, the, the anyway, anyway, I think that William is in in such a good position because I mean, I got to tell you, I just it's not because she's pretty or anything else, but he nailed it when he married Catherine. Period. And she has conduct herself with class and grace, unlike any other princess I've ever 
paid attention to over there. They've had a lot of controversy. Well, they're not creating controversy like his brother, let's say. And then you've got the knucklehead. And that guy is, you know, Harry is 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 an interesting cat. And Megan is... Uh, let's just say they're made for each other. They're they both, are made they're for They're both each troublemakers. Other. And I would be disappointed if... Um, Charles or William let them back into the fold because it's a disruptive influence for their own sake. Not that I really care, but. Well, it's going to be interesting. That's all I know. And um, there are, there are some definite big movements in Europe. All of these things that we talk about have some pretty major impact economically. Uh, I don't think a lot of quote investment advisory firms would talk about this kind of stuff, but. This is how we do it. Yeah, you don't really see a lot of people talk about it, but it's definitely being taken into account by a lot of people. And, um, you know, might as well talk about it. It's an, it's an important and interesting time period, and it explains a lot of the volatility going on in the market and oh. consumer sentiments and all those sorts of things. Oh, but wait a minute. But wait a minute, son. NFTs and crypto. NFTs and crypto. We should be talking exclusively about that. I refuse to talk about it beyond laughing. We're out of here. It is uh, Sunday, September the 11th, 21 days after... Uh, years. 21 days, I said. 21 yes. years. 21 years after the big event that changed the world. Okay, we're out of here. Due to our extensive holdings, that of our clients, you should assume that we have a position in all companies discussed and that a conflict of interest exists. By listening, reading, or using this podcast and website in any manner, you understand the information presented is provided for informational purposes. Nothing said, written, or otherwise communicated in any form on this site or otherwise should be construed as an offer, recommendation, or solicitation to buy or sell a security. Visit paultruesdell.com Complete the contact form. Do it today and you'll receive the weekly summary of what's new regarding this podcast and our blog, we call Current.